right, hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. You saw the title and you still press play. Well done. All right, we are in the fourth Sunday of Easter, and our text this week is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, starting in verse 42. That day, about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized, were signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, common meals, and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe, all those wonders and signs done through the apostles. And all of the believers lived in wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home, every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw every day. Their number was growing as God added to those who were saved. All right, the word of the Lord. Uh, what to do uh, with a text like this on the fourth Sunday of Easter? I would venture to say that every pastor, scholar, person has to do something with this story. I mean, uh, in some respects, we either have to take it seriously or what often happens is do some extreme interpretive man maneuvering to justify why what we just read is not realistic for modern life, too idealistic, uh, just unique to this particular community in Jerusalem at this particular time, how it's not prescriptive for living a Christian life today. And all that to say is that there's something that we have to wrestle with here as people that are trying to work out uh, what it means to be followers of Jesus, to uh, to live in this uh, kind of way, to be involved in a church, etc. And as many of you know, I've been reflecting this month on seven years being at Mission Hills, and I, I laugh in thinking about all the times over the course of that, that span where I genuinely wanted to approach a difficult uh, text and, and sort of go deep into the scholarship and sort of give my thoughts to it and sort of bring in the implications for th maybe this community. And I, I laugh because I'm just like, I hear your emails already. <laughs> I, I feel the emails coming. So there's part of me that's like, don't, don't say it. Don't, uh, don't do it. Um, but you know, nevertheless, we, we persist and we go, we go on. And I, another thing that I think was really funny thinking about this week, um, so one of the most common questions, uh, that I get asked is, uh, my, my philosophy on church growth. And, <laughs> I have many thoughts maybe on the subject, uh, but this text is a great example of how not to grow your church by talking about uh, Acts of the Apostles chapter 2 and how there's uh, like proto-communism in this community that most people just don't deal with, or like I said earlier, it's too realistic, idealistic, all that kind of stuff. But it's it's just not an attractive proposition, particularly to the American worldview and the American mind, where we treat church uh, like another consumer product. I mean, even, even the idea and the concepts, the philosophies around church growth uh, were based on the consumer product model from 
capitalism and then just taken into a church context. Uh, But I digress. Okay, so Martin Luther King Jr. once said uh, that you cannot be Christian and be a communist. Of course, you know, he's he's referring to a particular kind of capital C uh, communism at a particular time and place, referring to a specific uh, political reality. I am not referring to what he's referring to. Okay, so when I when I am sort of asking, can only a communist be a Christian? I'm using that in the in the way that I know that this early community has no concept for the, such a worldview, economic systems, political ideology, and obviously a modern uh, framework. So this is in the first century, but. What, what we're trying to get at and ask is they are starting and embodying a very particular communal reality uh, in the wake of the resurrection. That, that is what's happening here, and it seems disingenuous for me uh, to me when uh, scholars like kind of brush over this or focus just on um, the, the sharing of the meals and the prayers and don't talk about how they're really restructuring uh, the the society uh, that they feel called uh, to be in. And so uh, I also want to make the point that this is not, this is not just like an isolated one-time community. So let's get into it. Like there, the, the phrase sharing all things in common, this dynamic um, is not akin to this like sharing, I guess is what I'll say, is not akin to what we would consider charity or generosity or general goodwill. Um, we have to kind of realize that conservative forms of Christianity and uh, broadly Western Christian—I would say Western Christianity—but you see this more clearly in conservative forms today. Um, but we are all sort of products still of a colonialist Christianity, an imperial. Worldview Christianity took on the power of empire, and that morphed over time into forms of Catholicism and Protestantism, of which we've inherited some, you know, version of that. But from from the dominant power structure, so Christianity in in our time and in our life, and especially in American culture, is aligned with power structures of domination to varying degrees. Um, and because of that, it either outright ignores it outright ignores a text like this because all these texts are written from the very underside of power. They're they're alternatives to empire, or yeah, as I mentioned earlier, it's just completely dismissive. Or a story like this is not taken literally or seriously. It's always funny. <laughs> it's always funny to me that conservative Christianity or evangelical Christianity always holds a kind of claim of the Bible, like we have the literal interpretation. Um, and they never seem to read scripture dealing with power and economics literally. Hmm. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Anyways, I digress again. All right. Th- this podcast is off the rails. I, okay. So I want to say I'm not claiming to have any answers. I'm not saying that uh, you need to be a communist or that that there's some kind of uh, pure form of communism that this community is embodying that we need to aspire towards or return to. I'm not going to ask you to join a commune at Mission Hills. I, I don't want that. Uh, but I want us to actually get down to talk about that this tech, what we see in this text, and what it, this story, what this community is describing and depicting, is more complex 
than most of us want to admit. And I think this is why so many just brush over it. And so uh, David Bentley Hart insists that, a scholar David Bentley Hart, uh, and honestly, like uh, liberation theology, the work of David Bentley Hart, uh, there's another author um, named Roman Montero that have been influential in my my thinking on these particular texts. Um, He insists that it's not possible to extract a simple like morality from the sort of radicalism that we see in the early church, um, in the early Christian communities here. But I hope that we can all kind of be okay with that while still trying to wrestle with this kind of like fascinating story. So uh, I want us to ask some questions about how the early community enacts, um, how it how it formed in the wake of the resurrection and how it lives radically different and, and specifically with its economics uh, because of Jesus. And this all things in common, to see how this is actually uh, a full restructuring of a, a social hierarchy of domination, and that this is a continuation for this community, a continuation of the vision and life of Jesus. So how might we be challenged to question our own economic assumptions and hopefully live better as a result? Um, There's way more to say about this than I'll be able to get into, uh, but at least want to, you know, get our conversation uh, started for Sunday. And as always, this is part of the ongoing fabric of our conversation at Mission Hills. Uh, It's hard to run away from a statement as straightforward as all the believers lived in harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. Whoa, that is to the point, that is about as clear as it can be. And I, like I've said, I've heard all the excuses in the book. Uh, they lived in wonderful harmony. Oh, this is an exaggeration. Actually, you know, maybe the the author of the Gospel of, of uh, Luke, Luke Acts, is what he's trying to do here. Is he's trying to to lay out an ideal that people could try to. Yeah, I've heard all all the sort of things, um, but I can feel like we wince. Um, whenever we read something like this, because we, we have to sort of admit that our lives don't come close to approximating the immense economic shift that these early followers of Christ took on. There are, I mean, one of the subversive dimensions to this community, as I mentioned, was not an outlier, is their holding things in common is not what we would consider charity. So, um, Whenever we think of charity or benevolence, um, that usually implies that some, there's somebody who has and somebody who is in need. And when there's a charitable exchange, that hierarchy remains intact. Instead, this fellowship of early Christians, they're, they're making an economic decision to not hold possessions. And by doing so, they're deeming everyone as equal in the social hierarchy. As you all know, in the first century, there is the honor-shame system in which people's power and worth in society were always at risk, particularly for those who were destitute and dishonored. So you can see how the economic dimension to what this community is doing by not holding things um, privately but by holding everything in common is a full resistance of this oppressive system of domination and dehumanization by the Roman Empire. So sharing things isn't about just exchange or definitely not expectation of something being 
uh, given back in, in return. It's not like a, a trade economy. Uh, so there's no charity to those who have less, but it is, it is the creation of the new reality of the kingdom of God where no one is in need because everyone has intrinsic value. So this early community saw their uh, communion as a reorganization of Roman economic and social hierarchy. Um, even if they didn't see themselves as a social movement, they wouldn't have those categories. They f- this, um, the, the text uses uh, this term koinonia, and it's usually translated like fellowship or communion. But we'll, like what most scholars will say is that it is a particular social arrangement, and with that arrangement comes practices and expectations. So that would, the practices would be like um, going to worship, singing of songs, breaking of bread together, and then the expectations of sharing and selling all your possessions. Uh, David Bentley Hart refers to uh, these koinonias as small, self-sustaining communes. Small, self-sustaining communes. That's kind of how like maybe we would think of them. Um, but they serve as a counter-empire. Uh, they serve a counter-empire function. So there is a conscious establishment of a group of people that are going to have, that share a certain kind of value and ethic and practice an alternative function to how empires function, which is uh, beyond charity. It is establishing everyone's um, deep-held equality, if that makes sense. So it's interesting, like, uh, in living this way, uh, like in Christian communities, lasted for somewhere about, you know, 200 years or so until uh, Christianity becomes the sort of state religion. But you even see this in like uh, the Didache, which is uh, an instructive teaching dating, dated somewhere the first, second century. Uh, It's hard to date that uh, book. It's a really interesting book. You can, you can find it online, get a a copy. Um, But even in, in the Didache, it says you, you have to renounce private pro- property and hold all things in common. So all that to say is that uh, this Acts community in Jerusalem is not an outlier in early Christianity, but many groups of people saw this way of organizing life, this counter-empire, as rooted in in the way of Jesus and the, the call to be a disciple. So, you know, as you know, as I mentioned earlier, Acts is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke, Luke-Acts, and Luke is um, much more economically focused. It's when Jesus announces his ministry in Luke 4. He starts by proclaiming the year of Jubilee, or the cancellation of all debts. There's like a distinct economic quality to the social inclusion, which is it involves the erosion of the oppressive systems of empire and religion. So in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus not only says, blessed are the poor, but woe to the rich. In Luke 14, he says, whoever does not give up everything they possess is not capable of being my disciple. I mean, even when we think about a phrase like, uh, the poor will always be with you, Jesus there is quoting Deuteronomy's command to care for those who are destitute and lowly. And in fact, he's saying your life is to see the poor as your, your sister and brother so deeply that their need is your need. So, so these early communities are creating this reality, this kingdom of God within the kingdom of empire. And I want to point these things out to, I, you know, to challenge our consumer culture mindsets that, 
uh, and maybe it's helpful at some level to admit that, uh, yeah, we're, we're not Christian like they were Christian. And, and to say that uh, we need to go back to the first century and find, you know, mine this sort of pure form of Christianity, which many groups throughout history have tried to, you know, idealize, and, and there have been communities uh, formed that try to f- to recreate what this early Acts community is doing. I'm just not sure uh, if that is always the most helpful thing. I think there are uh, endless amounts of healthy, challenging questions that we can ask ourselves and ask of our community. And I know that one of the most beautiful things that I've been able to witness at Mission Hills over the last seven years is the creation of these kinds of relationships, relationships of true mutuality and connection where needs have been taken care of. And and I think this is one of the reasons why the church can still be a radical space, particularly in American society, that is um, the the sort of like dominant system where, you know, at Mission Hills, everyone can be seen as whole and complete uh, just as they are. And when there is a need, the community knows and pitches in and lifts up um, because of these same values that we've just read through. And I think there's something beautiful about um, still finding that kind of community um, that are trying to work out um, these this ethic and these values uh, together where we are trying to, in our own way, level the social hierarchies uh, that we find ourselves in, uh, level the, the economic hierarchies and oppressive systems that we find ourselves in. So um, that is something that I think in the encouragement that I find in a text like this is uh, I look back at seven years and I see over and over again how, um, how you all have done these kinds of things. And yeah, it might not look like you know, renouncing private property and selling everything. And maybe there's a time and a place for that conversation. Um, but the actual ethic of what is happening here, uh, I've seen happen at Mission Hills. And uh, there's something really beautiful in Counter Empire uh, to that. So I, a few questions that we can, we can sort of uh, leave with. Uh, how do I, we, resist the status quo uh, U.S. imperialist, colonialist, Christian mindset? How do I slash we resist consumer capitalism, the mindset of more, more money, more success, more? I mean, we see it all over culture and ev- everywhere, of course. Um, are we establishing alternative spaces where uh, the needs of our community are seen and met without existing economic expectations? Do I, we, see the needs of the poor and destitute as our needs. What are small changes that we can make, I can make, to find community with others in need? So I think those are just a few questions that can arise out of a conversation like this. So I I hope, uh, (laughs) thank you for listening if you made it this far. Um, And I hope we can continue, of course, the conversation on Sunday. And as always, as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Be well.